1: F E L D T dot com slash Thrive. Welcome everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Sam Schutte. He is CEO of Unstoppable Software. We're going to talk to him a little bit about his own experience building and scaling a service-based company in the technology space. We're going to talk to him about the companies he works with, helping them figure out how to leverage technology to grow and scale their businesses. It's going to be a fun conversation. I think as most people on the podcast know, I ran a, a technology company for many years, so we're Probably going to geek out a little bit on Agile and Agile software services, but I'm excited for this. I think technology is such a huge. Play in every business, particularly services. I don't think service companies leverage technology enough. And That gives a lot of great opportunities. So I'm excited to talk to Sam about this. So with that, Sam, welcome to the program.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, Bruce. Yeah,
1: so let's talk a little bit about uh, your background, how you got into this. In, in our conversation here, you were mentioning that you have both computer science and uh, business background. Tell us a little bit about how you got into that, how you got into software, and how you started Unstoppable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of funny. Growing up, I was I was always into just sort of and building computers and that was the sort of the BBS dial-up era. And that's sort of when I got into technology but I never really did any programming at all until college and I just I think I always thought I would be more of like a network guy or a server person or something but I went to University of Pittsburgh and took some programming classes and kind of decided to dive into that so I got my computer science degree from there and got out started working for I had really good luck that I my first job was with a commercial a publicly traded medical record software company you know so it wasn't just consulting in an IT shop somewhere I was I was building products you know which was awesome worked a lot of, in a lot of startups I you know, I've worked in IT departments you know, over the next, if you fast forward the next 10 years or whatever, Mm -hmm. went back to school and around 2008 to get my MBA, which was really interesting to sort of, you know, I already had my own company at that point. I actually, I started the business, went to night school, put my house on the market, and my wife got pregnant like all within a three-month period, right? <laughs> Funny how that happened. <laughs> Not in that order, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think my wife is like, yeah, you're going to start a business. That sounds like a great idea to do right now, you know, but it just worked out well. And, and and so kind of going through that whole MBA process at Xavier University in Cincinnati, you know, it was really interesting to kind of put that right side by side with yeah. technology. And and so yeah, so that was kind of my path and, and so the business was like I said started January of 08. So it's been over twelve years now and been running well. Yeah. And what
1: are I guess as a as a leader, you know, going from someone who's, you know, writing code or at least, you know, more on the delivery side, how have you kind of had to evolve yourself as you've,
0: you know, grown the company and kind of focused more on the CEO role over time? Yeah, that's a good question. It's crazy. My I will say like my job is so different. <laughs> and I ever thought it would be. Because, you know, like you said, even in 2008 when I started the business, I mean, I was just a solo practitioner writing code for hire, right? And of course, over time, I've had to evolve into... I mean, I think th- there's a couple key things that you just never thought you would have to do as a developer, like negotiate contracts <laughs> with a room full lawyers, right? Yeah. From a Fortune 500 company. Uh, you know, obviously the whole sales side, you know, I mean, when I first started having to do sales activities to when I wanted to grow the company beyond just myself, you know, I would get on the phone with I remember I had a phone call with a big insurance company and I just, I mean, I just froze. Like, I didn't know. It's like, I don't know. Cause all I could rattle off was like, well, you know, technology tools and Microsoft, Java, blah, blah, blah whatever. That's not how you do it. Right. And so I had to do, I, I did a lot of sales training. I did the Sandler sales training uh, system for about like five, six years. I did it a, a long time, mm-hmm. you know, and then also brushed up on, I did various marketing training and I worked with a couple of marketing coaches. So that was a big change and still was a significant portion of what I do just all that content and sales and strategy and legal and financial that, you know, I haven't written any code myself and very often yeah. <laughs> anymore, you know, because you still have time. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's been a that's been a big evolution. Yeah, I always say if I'm if I'm writing code at this point, something's gone horribly, horribly wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I occasionally will do something just to like prove I still got it. But yeah, <laughs> but my developers just laugh at me because yeah. it's like pathetic. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell me, as you've um, kind of grown the business, or if you've kind of looked at the at how your business has evolved, how have what are some of the key kind of strategy decisions you've need to make around uh, your customers, the markets you serve, how you've organized yourselves, your products and services? I mean, what what are some key things that you've kind of done over the years that have
0: either worked well or not so well when it comes to growing your own service company? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I mean, a couple things come to mind. One, and you know, you hear a lot of people talk about this is is focus and specialization right you know i think when you kind of start out any service companies especially agencies you just think well i just we do technology you know and that's kind of it and whoever wants us to and while that's sort of true and while what you do in your day-to-day isn't necessarily what you want to put out into the universe as trying to attract people right because it's too generic and so we over time sort of intentionally and sort of accidentally too tried specializing in manufacturing and healthcare as two big industries we work with probably about like 70% of our business mm-hmm. and i say accidentally because it just so happened that like some of our first companies were in, were in our first customers were in those spaces but then once you sort of have two or three of them you think okay now i sort of understand you know something about manufacturing, I can start creating content and messaging and, and outreach and, and speak to these folks, you know, very specifically. So that's been a big deal because it just, in a number of cases, it makes us much more appealing and interesting. And I still know a lot of companies that are much bigger than mine that don't do that. Mm-hmm. And they're always just sort of scattershot large messaging, marketing, you know, yeah. efforts to everyone. So that's been a big deal. And then, And then I think also as time has gone on, figuring out like, how do you really design a product offering that you're going to sell to these customers that fits them and also helps you, you know, sort of grow your business sustainably, right? Yeah. And we've done a number of things around that that we can dive into more, but... It's all about sort of designing the right packages and the right sort of uh, bundles of your services, I think.
1: Yeah, I have a phrase that I use a lot with my clients is that the faster you want to scale, the more you need to focus, right? The more yeah. specific you need to be, the more zeroed in on very particular segment, a very particular problem, a very particular solution to that, because that's the only way you're really going to create effective marketing and sales channels, the way you're going to really hone your team to be able to deliver against that repeatedly. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of getting super specific on your strategic focus. And I love the idea of packaging. I mean, I think, I think service companies look more like product companies I find do well. <laughs> you know, so the yeah. way that they can kind of productize or package their services in ways that, because you know, honestly, no one wants to buy hours, right? No one wants to just yep. say, all right, well, yeah, I'm going to pay you an hourly rate to just do stuff, right? They want solutions, right? And the only way they can sort of see a solution is to understand like what you do as a thing that's going to solve this problem, not how many hours you're going to spend or what your billable rate is or how many people. You're going to put on my project. Like I just want problem solved. So yep. talk to me about how you've kind of packaged things, you know, bundled things up in different ways, and I guess how, how you've applied them to different customer needs and why it's worked for you and what you've learned about that process.
0: Yeah. So I mean, and I guess so. First off, you know, on, on the note of hours, I mean, I think a key thing when you're designing any kind of these packages is, is to ask yourself, who am I competing against? Right? Like what is my actual competition? Because you know, if you let's say you're an hourly software development company, you're gonna bill you know, per hour to write code. So you think like, well, my competition is other consulting companies, other agencies. Yes, but that's your primary competition, right? You yeah. have secondary competition, tertiary competition, and, and most of the time if you're billing per hour, and you're just staffing, then your competition is just, well, what does it cost versus me just hiring somebody, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a weak solution because there's I mean, there's a lot of great employees out there. You can hire great people, you know, and it puts you in this weird spot sometimes of saying, like, you don't want to have to tell your customers, yeah, but what if you're not really a good manager? What if you're not good at hiring? (laughs) Like, because then you're just insulting them, right? It doesn't. It's not a great value sort of equation, um. And so I think, like, for for an example, um, so we've been working on. We've done quite a few recently of these sort of what I'm we would call like maintenance plans or maintenance packages right and with those we may say so the retainer based packages so a monthly flat fee and we'll say all right you know basically we'll fix anything that breaks and then we'll also do a certain volume of effort around Extending, enhancing, and adding on to your system, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's an interesting example because we have a we have one we're hoping to close here real soon. I mean, it's about a two hundred thousand dollar contract, and this particular company. I mean, they just they just furloughed a bunch of staff, as a lot of companies are out there right now with mm-hmm. all this COVID nineteen business. Yep, they've been told they're not allowed to hire consultants. Okay. Okay. But they're going to sign our deal. Well, why? Yeah. Because ours is ours is more of an insurance policy, right? If we put this in place, anything that breaks, they'll just fix. Oh, interesting. Well, it's a fixed, and it's a fixed car. I mean, they're just seeing it as a line item. Yeah. To fix, fix monthly fee. Now, we put limits on it. You know, we're not going to come in and work 600 hours a month to fix whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's fuzzier. So it, it's much, you know, it's much harder for them to, you know, because you want to get away from the sort of simple math equation of, oh, your time is worth, you know, 150 yeah. an hour or whatever it is. Yeah. And that's too expensive, not expensive enough. I mean, you really can't win because if you, if I say 150 an hour, if you have listeners in California, they think, wow, those guys are cheap. Yeah. If I, But your listeners in Iowa think, wow, those guys are expensive. <laughs> and what do they judge me? How do they judge our services based on that, right? Maybe we're no good. Maybe we're too good, right? Yeah. Maybe we're not. I mean, I've heard it. I'm sure you have too, heard it all the way. Well, we don't need guys that are that expensive. You're probably too, we need a weaker, you know, a more yeah. junior developer, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. So I think tying it to like, you know, what is the value in that case? It's an insurance policy. And I say that, you know, I'm like, look, this is just an insurance policy. If anything breaks, we're there. Mm-hmm. And there's other stuff like we start every project with a discovery engagement. So we don't do any proposal work. We don't do any design work, nothing for free, right? Yeah. And the solution there is like, or what we're selling there is like, look, you know, you want to take steps forward on your project, but you don't know what you need, what you want, what it's going to take. You're going out and you're getting quotes from people. and And often, you know, most of my competitors will just say, well, we're 150 an hour. And I don't know, maybe it'll take a month or two. I don't know. That's not a real, what's the value there? So if we say, look, you know, it's whatever, a few thousand dollars to really work with us and come up with a design an architecture and a plan. Well now you have a plan. Isn't that worth something? Isn't that worth X amount of money? Mm-hmm. And we probably have gotten to the point where, you know, maybe 20% of our revenue is just those those planning engagements essentially. Yeah. Um, whereas six years ago that was all free. You know, we'd just do it for free because <laughs> that's what you did, right? Yeah. So I think it's kind of like looking at every interaction you have with the customer and figuring out where you're delivering value and then figuring out how to productize it. And maybe also more importantly, like, when are they ready to buy something? Like, I always tell my customers, if I come to you and I say, look, you know, I'm a total stranger, but here's a contract for $500,000, you should sign it. They're not going to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a total stranger. They have no no trust and nothing. There's yeah, no basis for Yeah. But if I say, why don't we work together for a month and it's whatever, fifteen twenty thousand, 20000 whatever the number is. And at the end of this, you're going to get this, 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 and you can cancel any time and it's guaranteed and there's all these other, you know then they're ready to buy that they're ready they're ready at that point in our relationship to give it a shot maybe yeah cuz i think you know these folks that go out and just proposing out six figure contracts and they win one out of 10 of them you know, through RFPs or whatever, right? They're just kind of wasting a lot of time.
1: Well, they're taking a lot of risks too. I mean, I think that you talk about the, you know, you're not sure if the client is really ready. They don't know you that well. You know, the flip side is true too. <laughs> you mm-hmm. don't know them that well. Sure. <laughs> there's always, there's always a, sometimes the worst outcome is winning the bid.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, that's you know? absolutely true. Yeah.
1: And, and not really realizing that any kind of service relationship is going to have some kind of relationship component to it that goes both ways and you need to make sure it's a good match. And, you know, there's sometimes, You know, sometimes people take on clients that are not good clients for them,
0: right? And it's, um, you know, it's not, it's not good for the business. Well, and I think as a leader, I've been thinking about this recently because. Sometimes the more I think the more success you have as a leader of an organization, you know, you you get that confidence and then you start to sort of like get aggressive and and, and hopefully you're you're hungry, right? And you want to win, right? And so you you know, you get a customer and it's like, "Oh, I sent them this proposal and they like it and they want to do it." And you just kind of get all caught up and just like, "We're going to make this sale, we're going to do this business." But like you said, maybe you should step back and say, "Should we?" Yeah. Like, wait a minute. Hang on. Is this a fit for us? And, you know, I had a customer a little while ago. He was a high net, well, he was a prospect, high net worth individual, wanted to found a startup build some software. We had a personal connection, so the trust was already there. I got, it was an introduction from a close friend of both of ours. But he wanted to build software that was sort of like for, I guess I would say like the music industry. Okay. And I'm like, you know, he's got the money because I know he's a high net worth individual. It's not going to be a hard sale because the guy already said you need to hire Sam, you know? Yeah. <laughs> his our friend but like what's the referenceability there like how does it tie into our plan how much of my brain space is it going to take up you know because it does every project takes up some of your brain to do this in an industry that i don't really see as a future for our company, you know, of, of music-related software. As much fun as it might be to do some music thing. And so I turned them down. And I said, you know, I, I think it's just not a fit for us, you know, yep. which was hard because it would have been oh, yeah. a lot of revenue. Oh, yeah. um, and so, you know, I think you got to check yourself a little bit and not let your ego and your passion and your drive necessarily make you, like you said, lose by winning. Yeah,
1: well, the other thing is you have to have a defined strategy. I mean, if if you haven't done the work to figure out who really is my best customer, what is the problem I'm really going to solve for them? What are the differentiators that I'm going to sell against relative to my competition? Like if you haven't done that work and define that very clearly for yourself, it, it's really hard. Because otherwise, you're just kind of going on gut and you're thinking, eh, this this doesn't feel super right, but I don't have a good set of criteria in place to be able to make the decision. And, and you don't have a clear sense of what you do want. So it ends up becoming just like, eh, it doesn't feel quite right. As yeah. opposed to, hey, this doesn't fit our strategic profile.
0: Well, and, and I think the other thing is that, that I, I struggled with for a long time as a service, you know, technology services business, is, okay, I want to specialize and I want to have that sort of strategy and that focus, right? And so that means... Whatever I'm selling or offering has to be like so incredibly ultra focused and dead on that they hear it and they just think, wow, that is us to a T, right? But that's really, really hard. you know And what I have found works better is to just be like in your messaging and when you talk to customers, like you don't have to be dead on. But it can be, you know, maybe 30% there mm-hmm. that you're at least saying, we specialize in manufacturers. We do a lot of stuff with like production workflows and batch batch control and stuff like that and they mm-hmm. think, "Oh, yeah, that we we yeah. have batches, you know. We have jobs, you know." And so it's almost like keep it simple stupid, right? Yeah. And I mean, I <laughs> I banged my head against the table for probably 5 years trying to come up with like what it is, like how to describe exactly what we did for one specific niche and then you get too narrow and there's not enough people in that niche. And yeah, yeah. and then you describe it to some other customer and they think, that doesn't sound like us at all, you know, because it's, it's too specific, right? So it's, it's an interesting balance to be appealing and to sort of register in a customer's head, but not... Be talking about something they don't understand.
1: Yeah, I agree. There is there is a kind of a, a size to the target that becomes yeah. optimal where it's 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 tight enough where people can say, oh, like I you know I understand what you do. The other one I always say is you want to be referable, right? If you do anything yeah. for anyone, like how do I refer you? But it's like, oh, okay, I, I get it. You work with manufacturers on you know flow control systems. Like okay, like I, well, I can think of some manufacturers and I can think of some people that deal with flow control. I can I now have a, an ability to connect you with the people in my world. Um, Let me ask the other kind of, Part of I think the business for service companies that always comes up, which is you know the one side we have customers. How do I position myself? How do I order my channels? How do I sell? How do I package my products and services? But I always say services is really a double-sided market, right? You've got customers, but then you have employees. <laughs> You've uh-huh. got to go find talent. Talk to me a little bit about your strategy on the talent side. I mean, I, I was in the tech space for a long time. You know, finding good software developers was was hard. You know, the the demand for software development was you know has, has grown tremendously in the last 15, 20 years. The the competition for software talent is very, very high. How have you gone about figuring out who really fits your company from a culture point of view, from a skill point of view, and then how have you gone out and you know attracted
0: the right people and, and how do you engage them, build a culture around the company? Yeah, absolutely. And so I mean I think, you know, from a from a skill and sort of persona sort of view. I mean what we have defined and what and what we target is you know senior high end experienced developers you know so you're talking about 12 plus years experience something like that maybe 15 years experience mm-hmm. and you know that need to be fairly s- self motivated can learn quickly have worked in a variety of of different platforms so you're not getting somebody that only knows java and and you try to put them on something else and he struggles right my philosophy you know, having been a software developer myself, is is you know truly strong developers. It doesn't really matter what they're working in. You know, you could say, hey, go write this COBOL program, and they'll say, well, I've never done COBOL, and you'll say, figure it out. And yeah. and if they're a really strong, you know, analytical intellectual person, they'll figure it out, and they'll probably be better than a lot of COBOL developers out there, right? Yeah. For instance. So that's kind of like the persona, and and granted, you know, that's just what we put out there, and it, it's hard to sort of. There's a lot of stuff that goes into finding and you know, filtering and figuring out if a person is that right which is a whole other story yeah. but i think in terms of attracting those people to us it's like okay so if you've got so you have to design a company for that persona right it's yeah. just it's just marketing on like you said the yeah. to the other side mm-hmm. so if i'm a senior high end super smart developer i don't have time for any you know messing around right you know i don't want to work for somebody whose place is going to be political or you know Eagle, man, Eagle Maniacal or something or yeah, whatever, right? Yeah. All the things that you see in so many companies. And I also, you know, I don't want to I do not want to do things like, I don't want to have to commute every day. I don't want to have to wear a tie every day, that's for mm-hmm. sure, right? And of course, pay is important and, and everything else. And so really, so for instance, in our case, from the beginning, we've always been a remote workforce, um, which is very helpful nowadays with, with all the, you know, quarantines and shutdowns. So we've been a remote company since 2008. Yeah. And what that has also meant is that we have to get a lot of tools in place to make that work. We have a whole suite of systems we use and we've kind of perfected to make that work. Mm -hmm. And, And I think the other thing then why, you know, recruiting has not necessarily been a huge pain for us is because we're remote, I can recruit from, say, three or four zip codes. Right, and I have found that you know my competitors who are all like you know some of the companies out there think what what they need to do is have a really fancy, cool, sexy office, <laughs> that and tables, and, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You know they do that whole it's it's almost trope, right? Yeah. and they'll have you know Procter and Gamble or somebody come in in Cincinnati here, come in and say, oh wow, look at that, they've got a boa constrictor, right? <laughs> <laughs> like that's always my you know because that's a real thing. Like, oh yeah, and and you know and they think, wow, those guys are so creative. I guess they'll make really good software. Software, you know? But then your problem is you're recruiting in Cincinnati, which is a you know mid market, smaller market, right? And when I put out a job posting, for instance, I might get two job applications from Cincinnati and then like fifty from everywhere else, right? And that allows me to have this much wider pool of Of talent to to source. So if I can hire, you know, like at one point I had two guys in Idaho working for me. I don't know why. I didn't know why, but I found out that a lot of folks from Silicon Valley in California were sort of fleeing to Idaho because it's beautiful and it's cheap, right? Yeah. So, you know, by doing that and then with the right tools and management methods in place and sort of approach, we're able to have, you know, high performance distributed teams and I'm able to recruit from a, a wide pool of talent. So, I'm not trying to build this. Cause I mean, if I wanted to build, say, 500 developers in Cincinnati, that's like, that's all of them. (laughs)
1: Yeah, (laughs) you know
0: like it's not going to happen
1: right 92 percent of the market yeah yeah you
0: know of the ones i'm looking for and so yeah so that's kind of been my strategy and it's nice because i do see that a lot of service companies that are my competitors it seems like they spend more time recruiting than they do selling to customers yeah yeah because they are trying to build this like on-premise environment
1: yeah yeah no it's uh it is a hard that the talent side can be sometimes harder than the client side i mean i I do find certain service companies it's a you know, that the challenge is actually or the gating factor of growth, the gating factor of scaling the company is actually on the the other side, not the marketing and sales. Um, So you've been a distributed virtual team, you know, since inception, what are some of the things that you've done that have really kind of created the company or, or created a sense of company while still being distributed, you know, whether it's the tools you use, you know, practices, habits, meeting rhythms, how do you create kind of connective tissue between
0: folks working in a distributed manner? Sure. Yeah, and so I mean, I mean, there's the obvious ones, you know, the Google Hangouts that we all pretty much are available anytime to re- reply. I mean, people are, you know, Slack and stuff like that, and you know, we use we used Go To Meeting for a long time, and now we use Zoom, and and those things certainly obviously make the sort of distance smaller. But I think there's also stuff like we we use a timesheet and time tracking system called Harvest that I, I've had them for probably 10 years probably was one of their first customers I bet yeah. um, you know they're a SaaS based product and with that everybody can see what everybody's working on as far as tasks at any given time yeah. right and we kind of created this concept of uh, asynchronous uh, asynchronous management or asynchronous uh, something you know like that asynchronous project management which is basically like you know if I can just pop in and look at my report and see everything that everybody's working on that I don't have to call anyone. I don't have to have a meeting. I don't have to waste time. And so you know, I think what some companies do is they think, well, since we have this remote force, we need to have more meetings. We need to have a a daily nine a m stand up for two hours. Mm-hmm. right? And well, now there's like any time you saved on commute is gone, right? Um, so it's almost like you know I look at I look at our our reports and our data to see what we're doing. People that are subordinate to another, you know, manager do the same to to look and, you know, make sure they're on the right task. And if everything's happy, then, then we don't bother them. So, we sort of manage by exception, right? Like, if I look at a task and say, wait a minute, that why is he working on that? Well, then I'll call him, you know. Yeah. Because I've worked in a lot of shops, I think, before I started my company working in IT departments that, you know, uh, they'd have these, you know, daily status meetings and and you know you'd probably kill 20 hours a week in meetings yeah. you know just saying what are we going to do what are, you know and so we kind of cut that all out and then we do stuff like you know if a developer needs my feedback or even a customer's feedback on something you know instead of saying let's have a meeting is it? no no we don't need to have a meeting record a video put it in our video hosting in the cloud send me a link to it and I'll watch it at midnight yeah, and then I'll email, or I might take and I'll watch, a video up at two times speed. <laughs> exactly, or I'll and I might make a video of me replying to his video, yeah. drawing on the screen of what I don't, you know. Yeah. And so all that sort of like opening it up so that we're not like blockading ourselves by you know, our 1 p.m. standing meeting type stuff mm-hmm. means it kind of things just kind of flow. The trick I think with that a little bit is this priority of tasks though. Because when everything is sort of in flux and asynchronous, then well, what should I be working on a given in any given time? Yeah. Right. And so, you know, we've got some systems that to uh, sort of help manage the priority there so that people aren't sort of just getting into stuff that, you know, is out of order, basically. So I mean, you know, I, I guess I have the philosophy that if you can't manage remotely then you maybe you can't remotely manage right yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah and i think the remote environment exposes a lot of weaknesses in process and it's not just managing software developers i mean if you're a if you're a law firm right now and you have everybody working from home you're learning very easy learning very quickly like yeah. wow the old way we did it is really painful, yeah. And and this stinks. We need better document management or something, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that you know it's kind of had us helped us sort of perfect our uh, team management. Yeah.
1: Do you think? Uh, and we're just for notes for the audience here. We're recording this kind of uh, just after the mid of April here. Given you know COVID nineteen and everyone working from home, do you think that there's going to be you know companies that just continue working from home, or or what do you think the impact is going to be? on this period of time for a lot of companies that were forced into this, you know, unwillingly.
0: Yeah, it's an it's an interesting question. A lot of people have asked me that. And I, I think, um, you know, I think absolutely some companies will stick with it because they, you know, they will realize, like I remember um, uh, a friend of mine worked worked for IBM in North Carolina and they did some study at one point and they figured out that, you know, having, I can't remember the exact figures, but, you know, having a remote workforce at IBM saved them an average of like, you know, $8 an hour or something like that across every employee in the organization. Right. So, I mean, yeah, you know, if you look at that, you think, well, why am I, God, why am I paying rent? Especially if you're like downtown or something (laughs) or downtown Los Angeles or something like, you know, my goodness, the amount of money you could save, but it, it kind of depends on how well you're able to manage because of the tools you have in place. So I think to some degree it depends on how long we're in this setup for. Yeah. Because you know, what I'm seeing is that clients are getting into it and realize like, wow, this doesn't work. We need to implement a system so that for instance one of our customers they they manage like Customs documents from shippers coming out of the country, right? Yeah. And they're realizing like, uh we can't even get to these files when we're working from home. Sure. So we need a system. Well, okay, so let's let's give them another month and they'll get that system in place. And so now they're on the other side of that. And it's like, well, maybe we could just stay this way. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think that some companies will stick with it. I think that other companies, uh, you know, some companies that have been resistant to allowing people to work remotely because they always said, Well, that'll never work. We don't think we can manage your productivity, we won't know what you're doing. I mean, if they see a productivity gain or drop, then they're going to use it to justify the next decision. Right. Yeah. If we're all if those employees are sitting home doing nothing, watching Netflix, they're going to say we tried it, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was terrible. We got nothing done. And I mean, obviously, there's there's a cultural component to whether or not that's what your team is doing. Yes. Right. Yeah, and I think that's true. I think I think
1: some are going to come down to, you know, the nature of the culture and how they respond. And yeah, I mean, I think there's going to be some that that might actually dramatically shift the amount of work they do, you know, with distributed teams, whether it's at home or just, you know, from remote locations. You know, some will probably adopt some of the practices or at least develop a better contingency plan or be able to kind of go into this mode if need be much more easier in the future in terms of, mm-hmm. yeah, having the infrastructure and the policies and the processes sort of set up to be able to handle this. And then some will just be, thank God we're back in the office. <laughs> they, won't, they
0: won't change. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, before all this happened, of course, there was a lot of discussion and talk about medical leave policies mm-hmm. and like, you know, yeah. child care, you know, paternal and, and maternity leave and all this sort of stuff of becoming mandated or whatever and sort of stuff, right? And, you know, it kind of makes you wonder like, well, so, you know, might more companies say, all right, guess what? You know, yeah, you can get paid if, on medical leave. You have, you can work from home. It's no problem. You still have to work. Yeah. You have to be able to work. Right. Yeah. Um, As opposed to maybe a black and white thing of you're either in the office getting paid or you're at home being unpaid. Right. Yeah. So. That's interesting.
1: Sam, this is my a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, more about Unstoppable, what's the best way to get that information?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, our website is unstoppablesoftware.com. That's certainly a central hub to check things out. You can check out our podcast on there. We have a lot of case studies and blog articles and such. If you want to reach out to me, my email is just shooty, so S-S-C-H-U-T-T-E, at com. I'll make sure that
1: the uh, links and the URL and the email addresses in the show notes here so people can click through. Get that information. Thank you so much for taking some time today. I'll always love talking to people in the tech space, talking about remote work, particularly in today's day and age. But I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. I appreciate it.
0: You've been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt.